today's Total Water Polo podcast, we continue our series on the Tokyo Olympics with a conversation with Ben Howick. Described by at least a few people as the best center in the world, he and his USA teammates finished sixth in the tournament, and he's soon headed back to Champions League winners Pro Reco. Here he is, Ben Howick. It's tempting to call Ben Halleck an up-and-coming international star because he's only 24. Oh, my God. But that wouldn't be correct. He's already a full-fledged star and, quote, the best center in the world, according to his Team USA coach, Dejan Odovicic. He's the first American to have won a Champions League title with his Italian juggernaut team, Pro Reco. And he just completed his second Olympic Games in Tokyo. I'm going to just ignore all the collegiate success that you had at Stanford, Ben, and just say, here you are, Ben Halleck. Thank you very much for your time today. Of course. It's, uh, it is pretty crazy to think that you're 23. You've already completed your second Olympics. You're not only just being somebody on the roster, but you've had a huge impact, obviously. So... Um, first of all, share your impressions, if you would, of Tokyo in general, um, and especially, you know, compared to, to Rio. And it's interesting because before we started chatting just now, you were talking about how young you were, you know, back in we we crossed paths in Houston. I don't think we had a chance to, to have a conversation, but you were heading off to Rio and you were 18, you know. So the difference between Tokyo and Rio and the, and the difference between, you know, those two ages, really. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I said earlier when I was when I was headed to Rio, um, you know, the whole trip beforehand, Houston, and then at, at the Olympics, you know, you're just sort of in survival mode, um, just trying to, um, you know, find your way with the team, find your way in the games. Um, you know, you don't know what to expect at all moments. You don't know to expect the moment you get to the village, you know, once you're in your room, you know, once you're at the games. Um, but then Tokyo was, you know, so I, I knew a good amount of what to expect. Um, as far as, you know, opening ceremonies, the, you know, processing this and that, which also the processing is totally different because of COVID. Um, but, but just, you know, knowing what to expect in the games, I think was the most useful, but, but Tokyo was other than that was, was just so different. Um, especially, you know, the most biggest impact of that was obviously, um, coronavirus and all the restrictions that you had and the, you know, you know, the, the lack of social interaction that you had with other teams just because of COVID and, and all the downtime you had, but, um, you know, it's hard to compare the two other than, than what was happening in the pool. But that's, you know, the most important thing is the competition was the same, um, you know, five games and quarterfinal, semifinal, final. And, um, um, you know, being a little bit older, a little more experienced, um, I wouldn't say I was any more, you know, in the moment, but I was just a little more relaxed. I wasn't, you know, worried about, you know, what was going to happen when I jumped in the pool. I knew exactly what was going to happen when I jumped in the pool. Um, but it was just, you know, just, just being more confident, more relaxed. I mean, once you've done something before, it's, it's totally different. Setting aside the competition, we're going to get to that a little bit. It, did you have a good time? Like, do, are, do you have time to actually just stand back? To, given COVID, given the fact that you're restricted in all kinds of ways, is it, is it a good time? Is it a memorable time? 100%. Um, I mean, even though there was COVID, you know, we were lucky enough to be able to still go to opening ceremonies. Um, you know, which was also a totally different, you know, animal with, without fans. I mean, in Rio, we walked into the, you walk into the stadium and, you know, there's a hundred thousand people just going absolutely, um, you know, crazy. Um, and, and in Tokyo it was different, but it was still an absolutely unbelievable time. I mean, you, you still get pictures from all your, your, your family, your, your, um, friends of, you know, you on TV when you, you know, the United States walks in. Um, and you're still, you know, around an incredible group of athletes and people 
in the USA building just to get to know them. I would say probably spend a little more, bit more time getting to know the USA athletes this time just because you're a little more restricted, which I thought was actually pretty cool. Um, but yeah, still had an unbelievable time. I mean, the, you know, the physical location of the village, you know, was sort of on this little jetty island in downtown Tokyo, the, you know, everything with that was, was still unbelievable. So yes, had an unbelievable time, um, but just, just different. Just, it, it's hard to compare the two, I would say. Did you bump in anybody famous or somebody that you might have wanted to meet and you finally got the chance to do it? Um, sat across a couple of tables away from Novak Djokovic, mm. um, eating, you know, saw, you know, Luka Doncic many times in the, in the dining hall, both the Gasol brothers. I would say that I was most, most, mostly stoked about seeing, seeing Powell, um, you know, growing up in LA, watched him a lot, you know, the, those, those years when, when he was with the Lakers was sort of my younger years when I watched, you know, big fan. Um, but it, I mean, the other guys, it was super cool to see. And then, uh, you know, I thought it was also pretty sweet with all the downtime we had, you know, we watched a lot of other sports, you know, they have these TVs inside of the, the Olympic village, um, inside your, your room. That's sort of just like hardwired to every single event that's going on every single event you can pull up. Um, and so I was able just to watch a lot of stuff, a lot of different stuff. And then, you know, you walk in the dining hall and you see them. And I think maybe last time, I don't know if I didn't, I didn't watch as many other sports, just wasn't in the room, just sitting there doing nothing as much. So I thought that was a, that was cool to walk in the dining hall and see like, Oh my goodness, that, you know, that guy just had an unreal game, you know, in his, in his handball game or, you know, yeah. the, the, the track athletes or the swimmers or whatever it may be. But you couldn't go like in the past, you, you can just go to any sport that you want if you're an athlete, right? Yeah, no. In, in Rio, you, you had the bus schedule and there were buses just constantly going to every single venue for athletes who wanted to go. And you could just, you know, walk down to whatever bus stall and, and hop on. And that was just not the case at all. Um, did you get a chance you know, to do that in Rio and what sports, if, if you did, did, what'd you go watch? Yeah, because we, we, you know, we, we didn't make the quarterfinal. We didn't make it a group stage last time. So we ended, you know, what is it? Six days early. Um, and it wasn't, you know, you could stay in the village. I stayed in the village for the rest of the time in, in Rio. I mean, in, in Tokyo, if you, if you ended, you had to be out of the village within 48 hours. Um, so yeah, no, I wouldn't watched, um, swimming, uh, golf, gymnastics is what I wouldn't watch and track and track and field. I, I went track and field, not, not, to, I actually went with my family. They, they had, cause you can also get tickets for your family. So if you walk into the USA building, they had a big cubby board, sort of looked like a mail, a mail area with tickets to every single event and you could, you could reserve two. So I, I got some, me and my family to a uh, track and field. That's it. I've seen so many references to athletes having their parents in town and I don't, it doesn't sound like any of them came to Tokyo, but in Rio, the, is it a sort of an Airbnb kind of thing or they find hotel rooms a year in advance or how did your family do that? It's, it's different for each athlete's family, I think, because, you know, there's a lot of, you know, what most of these Airbnbs require when you, you know, because they're going to have someone who wants to rent it out no matter what at the Olympics. There's an influx of, you know, millions of people coming into town. And typically it's, it's a no refund sort of situation. It's not, you know, you book the Airbnb and you can cancel within 24 hours or, you know, a week and you can have a refund. Um, and so, you know, my family, we, you know, they, they looked for a place pretty late just because, you know, when the team was named, you know, there was maybe two and a half, three weeks before the Olympics started. Um, but I, I think there's some other athletes, families who, you know, maybe your son's in a little more, you know, secure situation. Maybe you, you have, a, you know, they've, they've been on the team for multiple Olympics or whatnot. Um, well, they, they'll go ahead and get a better place earlier, but you know, they, they, I think they found a place. I, I don't know if it was Airbnb or maybe it was another rental rental website, but they, they I mean, they, they ended up getting a good place. The problem was it was just pretty small um, just because of the timing. Um, but you know, I mean, there was only three of them and you know, they, they had a great time and 
Um, but yeah, so that, that was, that was how it works. And when they booked it, it was also no refund. So if I had gotten injured or something, I, you know, <laughs> a bit of a situation. It feels like you wouldn't be able to spend any time with them or at least not, not super organized amounts of time. I'm obviously it's great to have them there. There's no doubt about that, but it just seems like I could see my mom saying, well, when are we going to meet for dinner? I was like, uh, mom, look, I I'm on the Olympic team. I've got to go to the hall dining hall. I think I think that relate that the relationship of your parents to the Olympics is sort of a good a good uh, you know going to the Olympics and being an athlete of the Olympics is sort of this great balance of just handling everything at once. It's you're handling taking in the Olympics, but staying present in what you're doing. You know, thinking about what a you know what an unbelievable honor, what a big deal this is, what a lifelong you know no one can ever take it away from you. You're an Olympian forever, and then you know. Also, but you know, you also have a job to do, and you need to to do that. Just like you were at a tournament in the middle of Europe, and your family wasn't there, and you know, you can sit there and focus all day. Um, so I, I would say, I mean, and and that did happen. I mean, at that point, I was sort of just like, hey guys, you know, I, I'm not available until after we're done playing. You know, we can go do things then. But while while we're playing, it's you know, you're you I mean, you're you're living by the team schedule. You're getting on the team buses. There's there's not really time to. And 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 I mean, in real, for a day, I think you could get passes for people to come into the village. So you could, you could bring your family in for a day and have them walk around, you know, show them everything. Um, but obviously not the case in Tokyo, but it's, you know, the, the great balance of, you know, handling, handling, you know, family expectations, your expectations, but also, you know, remembering that you got to jump in the pool and do what you need to do. You just reminded me that actually a couple moments ago about Rio, were you surprised you made the team? I wasn't surprised when the team was named that I made the team. I would say if you told me, you know, a year before that, that you're like, hey, you know, some genie came to me and said, Ben, you're going to make the team. Yeah, I would have been like, wow, that's that's surprising. I mean, I went through a pretty significant physical um, transformation, I would say, between, I mean, you know, I was 16, 17, um, just sort of grew up a lot, I think, in that last year. Um, just, you know, physically just got, I mean, I was going to the Olympics. I was, you know, 6'5", 240 pounds as an 18-year-old, which, you know, I was not that it, that was not like that the year before. Um, so not your Harvard and, Westlake playing weight. No, I was, I was not, you know, two fifteen, two twenty, 220, um, you know, throwing around high school kids, but it was just so, so, well, you know, once that summer came and I, I, you know, played with the team and I, you know, we'd gone to, to world league in, in China. Um, you know, I, I knew that I was, I was there. Um, I mean, it all happened very quickly to be honest. Like I said, you're, you're in survival mode. And when you're just trying to, you're just, you know, getting through things and you're, um, you know, just worried about how you're doing that day. Things move really quick, um, especially being so young. And so it, it all happened very quick, but I would say on the day that the team was announced and I was told, I, I, I wasn't surprised. I wasn't shell shocked. I was, you know, once, once you got to the village, you're like, Oh my goodness, I'm actually here now. I think it takes a while for things, time for things to set in. Um, but no, I wouldn't say I was shocked, but to a lot of people, probably I could see, I could see that, you know, you're not there every day. <laughs> I, I recall prior to the Olympics writing and having conversations about that team, which was just young. It was like very young. And so you and Thomas Dunstan in particular, you're essentially high schoolers on the team, you know, almost. Um, mm-hmm. And so I do recall that part. But I'm, I'm curious. I mean, you've now gone through two Olympics. You know, Dunstan did not like he he was done after one just for an example. Right. Not to, you know, just to bring him up. But did you so it sort of indicates that when you were selected to the team, you knew you could do it. Like you weren't, you, you, you were confident enough that you just, you knew you could do it. Not that it would be easy, but that you could do it. Yeah. Um, I mean, 
the, the whole age thing, you know, I think would have been totally different. You know, there's a lot of players on the, on the, on that team who, you know, were going into their sophomore year, or maybe their junior year of college, you know, which is a significant difference, but the fact that, you know, you're, I haven't even played a year in college yet, you know, you're stuck to the Olympic team, I think is a, I mean, it's a, it's an eyebrow raiser. Um, definitely. And especially for two guys um, to be, to be selected. And so it, you know, it wasn't that, you know, I, I knew I could do it right. I knew it'd be hard. And of course, you know, there's, you know, the, the physical strength of me at 18, the physical strength of me at now, maybe if I'm, you know, not that much bigger, I'm 10 pounds heavier or whatnot, you know, is still, you know, pretty astronomical, you know, you, you know, you grow up until you're 18, but you grow up even more until you're 23. That's probably the, the biggest transformation of physical strength that you'll go through. Um, but it was just, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's very different being there every day and, and going through it. You know, I'm, I'm not thinking about, you know, every time I jumped in the pool when I was 18 that, you know, Hey, this guy's, you know, 28 or this guy's 32. He's so much stronger than me. It's you're, I'm just there and I'm, I'm just going to fight. I'm just going to do what I do and, and do it to the, you know, as best as I can. Um, so I, I would say that was sort of the more experience that, that I tried to put myself through, you know, don't try to think about what advantages. I, I think it's true. Even now, don't try to think what advantages this guy has over you or whatnot. It's you're going to go and you're going to fight as, as best you can. And that's mainly, I think a center position mentality. I think when you're playing the perimeter, it's not, Hey, I'm going to, you know, it's a little more of a, not finesse, but just a little more of a, you know, different sort of mentality and skill set. But as a center, it's, you know, you go in there and you, you scrap. I think it's um, a perfect segue because you kept using the word fight and it is a center thing. I mean, you know, you can use, I think it's fair to say finesse on the, on the perimeter. In 2015, 2016, I was talking with someone who would know about this stuff. And, mm -hmm. and I said, what, what about this Halleck? And he, he said, he's going to be really good. And then he used a profanity that I'm just going to say, and he, and he's a jerk. And here's what I mean, because I don't, I want to make sure that you understand. It's not like out of the pool. You are a jerk. It was in the pool. Like you were, you were a, somebody who wasn't going to take any crap from anyone. And this was observed at a pretty young age. And so I think you understand that this was supposed to be a compliment. And there's mm -hmm. a train of thought, especially in Europe, that Americans are soft. I'm fairly certain that you've already experienced that one, one way or another because the sport is, according to them, is, is played by the affluent. So how is it that you've been able to overcome that stereotype? Because I think you have. Yeah. Um, I think part of it was, you know, I, you know, growing up young and if you're an athlete that they, you know, maybe coaches want to push a little bit more, you get placed with higher ages. So I, I never played my age group um, in the U S until um, going into my senior year of college. I played one junior Olympics, my, my, my true age, which, and I, and I was on a younger side, you know, when you're playing 18 unders, it's you're going into your senior year and going, you know, after your senior year. So that's when you're 17 and 18. And I only played 18 unders when I was 17 years old um, in 2015. And, and I think, and, and that was, it wasn't like I was just playing 14s and 16s. It's most of the time when I was 14 years old, I was playing, you know, training with the national team with all the 18 year olds. And I think that sort of bred me to not really take crap from anyone. I don't know, you, even though I was younger, like, like I thought, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm younger, you know, we're still in the pool playing the same game, you know, having the same goals. So if someone, and I was always a big kid, but you know, when you're 14, you're playing with a 17 year old, you know, they're probably going to be just as big as you and just as strong as you, but probably stronger. Um, and you know, when, when I would say when I was younger and, and guys tried to, you know, either physically intimidate or, you know, whatever it may be, 
um, typically physically or, you know, mentally, verbally, whatever it may be. I, for some reason at a young age, I just decided, I made the decision. I was like, that's, that doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me, you know, why, why they're not just, you know, trying to play. And, you know, so I think that sort of made me a little bit of a, you know, quote unquote jerk in the water because I mean, it, it was just, you know, every guy I looked at and I was just like, are, are you going to try to, you know, mess, you know, you're going to try to, you know, mess with me or, or, or whatnot and make me, you know, sort of fold just because I'm four years younger than you. And so th- that was sort of a characteristic that I had very early. And I would say it's, it's actually a lot better now that I'm older, I would say, especially at the international game. I mean, you know, this is guys full, you know, full-time job, full, full-time job. You know, it's not the the sport they're playing in the, in the fall, or it's not their sport that they're playing in college and they have, there's an expiration date on it. You know, these, these guys don't have an expiration date on it. So honestly, there's not a huge incentive to make a ton of enemies, I would say. Um, which is, which is something that's interesting because I, I came from college, I came from high school and honestly, it was much more of a dirtier fight, I would say, because, you know, guys are, this, you know, this is my last game. I'm done after this. Um, that's that, yeah. Well, is it that? And it, maybe it's also just because you've earned the respect of the people you're playing against. I, I would, I would say that that's also, that's also an aspect of it. Maybe that it's hard to look at the other side of that now because there's not guys coming in who, you know, don't have, you know, zero respect or something definitely when i was younger on the national team i i that was probably a huge plus for me in 2016 getting onto that team was i i, I didn't really care you know i i had watched all these guys playing against growing up and you know idolized them and watched highlight videos of them you know with insane shots and whatever but if they tried to you know be mean to me in the water i was just i don't know people probably thought i was crazy i was 18 years old i was just asking to get you know hit in the face I will say that what I noticed in this last tournament, and we'll start to get into the competition here just in a, in a, in a second. First of all, why do you even bother wearing a cap? Because there, there's never been a, a possession, I think, that you've had the, even the ball in some vicinity of you where they're not you know, whacking you upside the ear and taking your cap off. And I'm I'm semi joking about that, but it was also representative. I would observe your face when you were being manhandled by more two or more defenders. And it, you never looked flustered. You always looked, in fact, you almost looked slightly, it was sort of like hangdog, a little bit bored about it all. It's like, oh, they've been, uh, they're whacking me around again. So that, that clearly is something that you've learned over time. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, at a young age, I think I had a coach tell me is, you know, no matter what's going on, you can't look like, you, a, you can't look like you're doing anything. So it's, it's like if I was going to hit somebody in the face or I was going to make a really aggressive move, I can't get this really, you know, scrunched up, you know, bracing for impact face or else, you know, that's, that's very obvious to the referee. The referee can't see much. But one of the things he does see is your face, your facial expression. Um, and, that, and that tells you a lot. You know, you look at someone's face, you can typically tell how they're, what they're feeling, what they're doing, um, you know, what mood they're in. And so as a center, you know, no matter what you're doing, you know, I, I think there's a time and place, especially, you know, when someone may be um, committing an infraction on you where you, you know, have to do change that facial expression, you know, in order to signal to the referee, Hey, something's happening. Um, but from, from a very young age, it was, you know, sort of just have a, have a stone face. And I think this is, you know, you also see this a ton with defenders too, because they're the ones trying not to get excluded, but I think it's applicable to the, to centers as well, because you're trying to not commit an offensive, which in how today's game is being called is, you know, a tricky, it's a tricky game. Um, so it was just, I mean, and, and, you know, someone hanging on me, someone grabbing me, it's, it's nothing new. It's something that happens every day in practice and it happens in every single game. So there's nothing to be surprised about. 
Um, and, and, you know, an exclusion can't be called every time. And I, and I get that, even though it may be an exclusion every time, maybe it's not, but you know, just how referees work in all sports, you know, you can't call a foul every single time, you know, someone drives, drives down the lane and, and has contact with someone it's just, you know, this game games move in momentum and referees make calls for both teams and, and whatnot. And I think if you know, every single time you're, you're showing and you're, you have a spatial expression being the victim, I, I think it can hurt you because you, then you don't, you know, if you pick your spots on, on when to show and when to not, then I think it's, you know, it's helpful knowing when calls are going to come and when calls aren't going to come. We've reached the end of the first half of our conversation today and we'll return in just a moment. All of Total Water Polo is brought to you advertising free and we'd like to keep it that way. So we're asking for your help. Show your support by going to totalwaterpolo.com forward slash give so we can continue to cover the sport we all love in the United States and beyond. Hi, this is Tony Azevedo, five-time Olympian, uh, and you are listening to the Total Water Polo Podcast. And now, part two of today's conversation. All right, center play overall. So um, the U.S. has had great centers, but it's not actually necessarily known for having centers. It's known more for movement and playing defense and counterattacking and so on. At the end of the tournament, the top two centers for shooting are guys named Alex Obert and a guy named Ben Halleck. You went five for 15. Obert went six for nine. So I don't think it's a fair comparison. He was a much higher percentage, uh, but that I don't think that matters. You were at 33%. Um, and you as a team were tied with Hungary for the most goals from center with 12. Um, so again, not necessarily known for having strong centers. And yet there you are. You do have strong centers. You were successful. You personally were very successful in scoring, but it was also just patently obvious that you were being targeted defensively. And I don't know how many, I couldn't find the stats. How many exclusions did you draw? I think it was somewhere in the 40s. Do you think I, I suspect that was the, among the highest in the Olympics? I think I mean it was uh, Tony. Tony is in his app and his uh, company Six Eight Six Eight Sports. They were they did an analysis I think of every game um, during the tournament. I you know try not to follow it. That's not you know <laughs> super important. You know what you're where you're at. Um, but I, I saw a couple of things days ago because I just did like an overall summary and I, it was somewhere in the forties. It was 40, 40, 42, 43, I think. Um. So, um, is this even a valid conversation to have anymore? In other words, again, the the style of American play over the years has been as I sort of described. But now you have two very strong centers and the best center in the world, according to both your coach and Alex Bowen. Um, how does that fit in the overall strategy for this team, not only in the Olympics that were just passed, but in the future? Um. I think every team is different. I think, you know, as a coach, when you're given, a, you know, a set of players and you figure out, you know, what your strengths are and typically you play, you know, towards those strengths, you know, if you don't have good centers, you're not going to play a super, you know, you know, center focused offense. Um, and I think that, you know, how, how OB, how Alex, you know, Alex Obert and I played during the Olympics was, was absolutely, you know, awesome. I think that the United States has not been known to have, have good centers and, you know, I, I think that's a bit of an unfair assessment. I think, you know, obviously, you know, Terry Schroeder, uh, you know, Ryan Bailey, you know, all the guys in the 2000, you know, 2008, 2012 uh, team were just, you know, some, some really, really good centers. Um, but I, 
I, I just think that's more of a sentiment, you know, towards the U.S. overall. I just think, you know, players are always young. They're, you know, they're not experienced. They finish early and whatnot. So I, I just, I don't know if the world exactly got to see exactly what every center had to offer at their, at their prime, I would say. Um, I think, I think Obi is a, a perfect, a perfect example. I mean, how Obi played in, in, in Tokyo was, you know, he played unbelievable, he played amazing. Um, now, if Obi had stopped after the 2016 Olympics, you know, he still played well, but I, you know, how he played in Tokyo, I think it was just a, a total, a total game changer. And I think, so I think there's a lot of athletes who never got quite to their, cause he's, he's 29 years old. I think I don't know if every athlete got to their prime age, you know, when they're at their physical and, you know, hopefully mental best. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think it's the U S ever had, had worse centers. I just don't know if you, and I think this is true with a lot of players in the U S you just never saw their full potential. You never, you never, you never got to that age. You never got to that experience level. I want to get a little nerdy about technic uh, about technical one technical question, and this was actually driven by what Alex Bowen said to me in in our conversation, which is uh, you know that center play is now all about dry balls, is what he kept saying, and um, and you know back in the day it was absolutely verboten to give the center a pass that was dry. It just you just it was it was a matter <laughs> it was a crisis on your team if your coach caught you trying trying to throw the ball into the center dry. When when do you remember observing that that was changing? That the dry ball into the center was going to become a much bigger part of the game. Um for me it's it started with the refereeing um, you know, when you're in the classic center position and I don't mean locked up, I mean, you know, he's behind you and, and, and you're, you're sort of facing, you know, the goals behind you and you're facing the rest of the offense. The, the, now with how, how this position is being refed, the defenders in a very precarious position because any sort of, you know, really aggressive movement by me and their hands are down, it's going to be an exclusion. And so, you know, and, and when the ball comes in, it's almost not, you know, they're going to take the exclusion just because they're trying to prevent a higher percentage shot. They're going to want to, to play five man. Um, and so, you know, I have watched other guys do this, but I, in high school, I sort of started experimenting with it was, you know, you, you think when the ball comes in every center, you know, you step to the ball, right? You create separation between you and the defender. And like, why should that be limited to when you have the ball? If you can create separation when the ball isn't there, it's still separation. You're still, you know, separated away. And it, the, the passing, the, the drive pass in the center then becomes the timing of it much more important, much more difficult, much more sophisticated. Um, but if, you know, if, if I'm, you know, backing this guy and I go to, to, you know, create separation and he puts his hands down, it's going to be an exclusion because I'm clearly trying to make some, you know, it's, it's very obvious, you know, I'm trying to, to get away from him and he's going on top of me, whatever it may be. It's a very clear cut exclusion, but I can do that as many times as I want in possession. That, you know, they, that's not really something that you can, a defender can stop you from doing is trying to, you know, getting chest to back and then creating separation. But if they leave their hands up, you know, if, if they, there's a lot of ways that you can try to, you know, guard this, this move as a defender, but it's honestly, it's, you're in a pickle. It's a very difficult position. Yeah. But if you, if you leave your hands up, which then you're, you're giving me your, you know, the back, you know, the front of your chest to then sort of have a platform to, to snap off of. And I get, you know, and I have my legs up and I, and I create separation then it's all I need is the ball. I've already created a separation. You've sort of, sort of done the center movement backwards instead of waiting for the ball and then separating away. Like I would say most centers do. And, and it, you know, I do when the, you know, when, when the situation permits, but if you can, you know, sort of do that backwards and you receive the ball, well, then there's no, there's no timing between you receiving the ball and shooting the ball. There's right. no, one can come back, you know, there's no drop that crash. The coach can scream crash, but it's like, I already have the ball and I'm in a shooting position. Yeah. You know, you can't ask a ton of your, the, the guys who are in the drop to, to do anything, you know, so that was, that was sort of, you know, it changed with me how the position's being ref because 
if I can make this move and the defenders are allowed to sort of, you know, hold, you know, grab my lat, grab, you know, underneath my arm and prevent me from moving, then I'm not going to do it. So I would say it just change how, how, you know, how, how the game's ref is what I would say. Well, it also requires you to have good communication one way or the other with whomever is passing you the ball, right? So before, and when you're talking about sort of classic center play, you can be kind of passive in the sense that you're waiting for a wet pass and it could come at any time. If you're looking for that, if you're going to create separation and then you're just left hanging there, then it doesn't really matter. Like you have to have a teammate who knows that that's what you're going to do. Yeah, I think it goes, you know, playing the classic center position where you're waiting for the ball, it's, you know, you're waiting for them to pass the ball. You know, you know, obviously, of course, you know, they have to pass the ball when you're ready, but as more time, it's as a center. I think it's much more difficult because you have to be ready at all times to make a move when the ball is going to come in. And of course, you want to be on the same page when that happens, but sometimes it's, it, it's, you're not. Yeah. But I would say, you know, as a center and making that dry move, it, you have a, a big responsibility on doing it at the right time. Because if you make that dry move and I come over my hips and it's not the ball's not in a position to get to me, and you know, of course, there's a responsibility on the field players to be able to have the ball in a position. But if I do it when it's not a smart time to do it, then I have come over my hips, I've gotten rid of the space I've created, and now I've put the front court offense in a tough position to create a, a you know high opportunity shot. So it's it's not just oh, hey, I made the dry move and hey, where's the ball? You know, why didn't you just get the ball to me? You know, sometimes, you know, it is they need, do need to have the ball in the right position. And sometimes it's, you know, it's on them, it's on you. But as a center, you know, you have to be, um, you know, judicial with when you're doing that. Right. Because you can, you can just ruin a possession. Yeah. Okay. Um, give us your impressions of how frustrating it is to play against Japan in general and in this game in particular. Japan's tough. Japan is a, is a mentally and physically tough game. Um, the style which they play, I'm sure everyone knows, is an extremely high press, extremely risky, um, and extremely, you know, hard, it's, it's hard to play against them. Just the the style, it's just so pol- polar opposite to everything that you've ever been taught and played against, uh, maybe except at the 12 and under level when, you know, if you had some, some good athletes on your team, your coach would just have everyone press really, really high, and you're just better athletes than everyone else, and you could steal the ball and swim faster and whatnot. But with, with the Japanese, I mean, they're – First of all, like they're good water polo players. I think I think people don't give them the credit. They're all really fast, and they're all like, pretty good shooters. They're all none of them are you know a you know a Dennis Varga or a uh, you know Mondich or, or Filipovic, but they're all they all can score. They're all really good shooters, and they're all really fast and really athletic. And when you when you take a group like that and an extremely disciplined group, and you make them you know do play a style such as that, it's 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 hard. It's hard to you know the trust that you have to have between you and your teammates that they're going to make the right decision because in order to play correctly against them, you have to put yourself in a compromising position. And if you put yourself in a compromising position, I have to trust my teammates that they're going to, you know, make the right pass, make the right decision, or else, you know, we're all done. They're going to go score the other way because of the, the, the high press and the counterattack opportunities. Um, but it was just, sorry, um, but it was just sort of something that, you know, had to, you have to get over it. You have to practice it. You have to, 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 to face that monster. And I think, you know, we, we had a good preparation for Japan and the game was up and down. We were down three at one point, but I was, I was really proud of, of how everyone on the team responded. Nobody panicked. Um, I was, I was extremely, extremely happy with the result of that game, but you know, things that happen within the game, of course you can, you can do better. 
You've had situations in which you were not really being guarded one-on-one. Is that correct? I mean, Alex Bowen was talking about how the thing that they did that was maybe a little bit new is run this crazy zone where they're not even guarding the center necessarily one-on-one. And just in my own, you know, in my own experience, which is not like yours, when you're, you almost feel lost if you're playing center and there's not somebody who's, you know, trying to drown you. Yeah, the best way I can describe that defense, it's an M defense. Yeah. Which I think everybody knows. But a typical M defense is you have a center defender and then you have someone sitting right in front of the center. And they pretty much took those two players and just rotated them, what, 45 degrees. They put them on either side of you. And so it's it, we call it a lateral M zone. And so, the, you know, the M zone on top is the same exact thing. And then you have these two players on either side of you. And, and the, the helpful part of that for the defense is that if, you know, if someone drives, there's two or four drives, you know, they can pick up one of those drives. You don't, if there's not a huge, and if, you know, the ball goes to one place, basically both defenders are sort of tag teaming in and out at defending. Um, and it's frustrating. I mean, as you know, you don't, you just sit there and there's two guys like half a meter away from you. It's not a smart decision to throw the ball into you. You're probably just going to get smothered. And it's just very strange. You're sitting in the middle of the pool and you're, no one's really, t- it's just, a, it's just an absolutely foreign feeling. Um, but, but I mean, we, we, we thought that they would potentially do something like that. We, we actually thought that Italy was going to do that more. Oh, they, really? they, well, they played that defense against us um, in, a, in a tournament before the Olympics. And so we actually practiced a, you know, a good amount. Um, but, you know, we, did not, we, we didn't expect that, that Japan was going to do it. You know, that was, that, you know, they hadn't changed a style in seven years. They hadn't shown anything other than high press. High press, high press, and do that until they die. And so, you Which know, they team, did, by the way, they would die. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a team does that for seven years and you're like, okay, they have an identity. They're going to stick to it and they're going to, they're going to die on that hill, which is, you know, respectable that you, you do it. And, and, you know, they, they changed it in the second half, which was, you know, good for them. They, they had a trick up their sleeve. Um, but uh, yeah, that was, that was a bit <laughs> frustrating, but, you know, again, I thought we, we, we handled it. We handled it decently well. Yeah, it's it's it is maddening when they're playing against the team that I'm supporting, which is you guys. And then when they play others, it is so fun to watch. I mean, it's it is just nothing but dangerous, but it's just so fun to watch Just playing with fire at all moments. I love watching them play other teams, to be honest. You're just you you know, you play a great team like hungry, you know, hungry or Greece. I mean, they had, you know, they Greece beat them by one, you know, last second. I mean, it's just, you're just watching it. You're just like, I cannot believe they're doing that, but it is, it, I'm here for it. I think they even played a higher press in this tournament than they have otherwise. I know you just said they've been playing this style for about seven years. And, I, and, and usually to me, it's sort of like this lateral, like extremely high lateral press. You're basically, your toes are pointed to the side of the pool. And this sure. time it was more like, here you go, go ahead. You just take inside water, that's fine. You can just have it. And uh, yeah. I'm going to hang out right here. And then when you're not paying attention, I'm going to counterattack on you. Once you, once you sort of like flip your mindset and think about how to beat it mm. and you just are doing things that are very unnatural, it's something that you would never do. It's, it, it, it's, you know, we're practicing it and of course we're playing against each other. So we're trying to emulate Japan and, you know, they get inside and if someone gets inside of me and I'm on the perimeter, you're pretty much in panic mode. You're yeah. just doing everything you can to get back to the inside. And we were doing that against each other and our, you know, our coaching staff is like, just don't panic. And they showed us video of them getting turned inside. And it's just like nothing ever happened. Mm. They couldn't care less. And they're just sort of following you. And it's it, very interesting. 
we're running out of time. I'd wish we could talk all day. We should have a meeting in 10 minutes, which is uh, poor planning on my part. But um, um, we might. Uh, Greece was apparently, according to Bowen, the worst game of the tournament. I think, you know, the score sort of indicates that, but it, he confirmed it. I don't know if you had the same sense, which was you just did not play the way that you had wanted to play. I, I do have one question about that, which is there was some speculation that the Greeks were really they wanted to perform because they wanted to be top of the table. Whereas you just knew that you were going on to the next round. Can you, can you even speak to the notion that you, you know, this was not a game that was important to you as maybe it sh as others had thought it would have been. Yeah. I, I don't exactly remember what the, what the state of the group was going that day because, you know, the last day is always interesting with that with teams who may want to lose a game or win a game. Um, and, and there, there was some movement at the top of our group between Greece, uh, Italy and, Hungary, whatever happened in the, I think Italy, Hungary tied. And it, I don't remember how it, how it shook out. I, I knew that no matter what we were, um, after we lost against Hungary, we were going fourth. Um, that was, that was pretty set in stone. If we had beaten Hungary, then we would have been in a much better position to, we could have, yeah, it would have been because Greece tied Italy. Yeah, it would have been very different. Um, but I mean, you know, that was our last game before the quarterfinal. And that's not a game that you, you know, need should take lightly need to take lightly and whatnot you want to have momentum going into the quarterfinal game you want to come to the quarterfinal game just beating a good opponent firing all cylinders um and that was a game that after we played i mean you know i think we all individually watched it um but it was not really one that we wanted to remember i think it was you know going into the quarterfinal well, game okay this happened you know no one's gonna say it didn't happen but once we play spain in two days it doesn't matter what happened two days ago couldn't have less of importance you know if we had played well, we still have to play well against Spain. Um, and of course we would want to play well in that Greece game, but um, you know, I, I don't know if it was, I, 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 you know, don't think it was that guys were, were focused on the next game because of course, you know, losing that game by that much, it, it feels awful. I mean, you're, you're still spending energy after that game thinking about the game where you really should be thinking about the next one, but because you played so badly, it's gonna, it's gonna bother you for the rest of the night. So I, I don't, yeah. Okay, so uh, first round you lost to Italy by one. It, it, you've, you've gone back and forth. You beat them in Georgia. You In your first round game in at Tokyo, you lost to them by one. And then in what I think is your best game, you beat them in uh, in later rounds. So what were your what was the difference between the first and the second game at the Olympics against Italy, if you can recall? Our, our game against Italy in, in, in group play, we really thought we should have won. Um, you know, we, we took a 3-0 lead, and we were winning most of the game. Um and it was one of those situations, you know, we not, I, I don't want to say that we have an inexperienced team. We have a team that's been together for, for four years. Um, but when you're leading by one or two at a very high level, it's you, you gotta, can't be afraid to go win the game. You know, you can't be afraid, you know, not, not to win, but you know, you, you can't play conservatively. You can't, you know, second guess, you know, doubt yourself. You can't sit back and say, Oh my goodness, look, we're beating Italy by two. And we felt that I think that happened a little bit in that game. Um, we controlled, we controlled, you know, the, you know, the possession, the exclusion ratio, um, played, 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 you know, I think decent defense. I mean, we, we, I think we scored 11 goals that game, which is more than enough to beat a, to beat a team, you know? And I think, you know, defensively, we thought we just, we gave them gifts that we shouldn't have. Um, and especially after beating them in, in Tbilisi in Georgia, um, we, we knew that, that we could beat them. We knew that we should have beaten them, you know, twice in a row then. So it was, I think just a lot of confidence walking in, especially looking at the video from the last game and saying, this isn't going to happen again. This, you know, this can't happen again. This shouldn't happen again. Shouldn't have happened the first time. So I think, I think that was, that was the key. 
You have Paris in mind already? It's only three years away. I'm I'm, I'm going back to Italy this year, so okay. I, I, I think I do have Paris in mind, yes. Um, and speaking of which, so it's being presented in some cases that, uh, you know, the that the number of Americans who went to go play overseas in Europe this this last year is almost purely a consequence of COVID. I'm not sure that's quite right, but that 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 was the case. Um, uh, maybe briefly, you could talk about yourself in the sense of did you always know that you wanted to play in Europe? So no matter whether this had happened or not, you would be there. I would not have been there last year if it wasn't for COVID. So I I, I was I had one more year left of eligibility. Mm. I only played three years at Stanford. I had I had, I had my senior year left my because I registered my my first year after the Olympics. Um, I uh, so I I had I had a year left. I was I had you know two quarters of school left. We all took off time for full time training, and basically things were shaking out. Where in California you couldn't practice, we couldn't you couldn't have contacts. What you could do, we go to the pool every day. We could swim. We could lift, but we didn't have contact, and it didn't look like we were going to be able to have contact until you know a vaccine was presented or whatnot. And so we were, you know, coaching staff sitting there, players all sitting there, what, what are we going to do? And it, you know, didn't look like season was going to happen in the fall because I was supposed to go back and play Stanford in the fall and finish, finish my degree. Um, and just so happened at the time that I, I got a phone call from from Gabby Hernandez, the reco coach. He asking, called you, okay. Yeah, just asking what my situation was. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like, hey, here's a contract, here's this, here's this. It was, are you done with school? Are you not done with school? And, you know, at that time is when, you know, the, you know, down and the coaching staff were like, "Hey, we got everyone's probably got to get to Europe if they want to play." And there was a lot of unknowns. That was like, "Hey, well, what if Europe just shuts down once winter comes and COVID gets worse?" Um, and so that that was this waiver that a lot of the college guys got, that Hunnis got, that Marco got, um, Ash got it as well. They, it was a this sort of waiver to say, "Hey, you can go and play a year in Europe and then you can come back." Um, and that waiver was actually sort of done after I had made my decision to go play because that that was a very tough process trying to retain eligibility while still trying to talk to Reco, but without trying to talk to Reco about certain things that once you talk about certain things, technically don't have eligibility anymore. And it was, you know, in the water polo world, you know, you're talking to compliance officers and no one's had a water polo player do this before. <laughs> considered, yeah. considered, considered leaving, you know, not, you know, I, I, thankfully with COVID, everything was online. So I was able to finish, finish my degree in, in December um, while I was in Europe, but no one had ever, I was just asking questions that people didn't really have answers to. <laughs> Um, yeah, making them do their jobs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that, that was, that was a tough process to, to walk through, sort of walk myself through and make that decision. And it was, I mean, it wasn't fun being able to tell, you know, coach Vargas and all my teammates, Hey, I'm not going to be, you know, playing my last year with you guys. And then I, you know, plan on doing, you know, we won in 2019. Of course you want to come back and do the same thing over and over again, you know, just for, you know, your college legacy, just, you know, be able to win again with your best friends. Something I was really looking forward to, but, um, you know, took a risk to go to Europe, not exactly a risk going to play for a club like Reco. Well, yes, that's what I wanted to talk about. Yeah. But, but yeah, yeah. Right. Um, if you go to Reco site, it lists all their championships and it runs out of space. Like the, it, there's just so much uh, history involved in that team. You're part of one of the most successful clubs in the world. How has that experience been? Have you been, I mean, they called you. So I was going to ask you if you've been welcomed from the start, but it sounds like that's, that's been the case. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I never really talked with the club on how, cause it was very late in the process. Most, most players sign, you know, at the end of the season or right before the end of the season sometime in you know April, May, June. Um, and I, I was contacted and really had those conversations about coming in late July. Um, 
And I mean, I was, I was very lucky to be able to, to go to Retco and there's a couple of, you know, English, you know, this is their first language. There's a couple of players and also Gabby, you know, who's married to uh, Carly Neutral, you know, Olympic gold medalist for the women's team. So he, he speaks English, which I was, I was very fortunate to have that. And there's, there's, you know, an Australian guy, Aaron Younger on the team. Um, and another, you know, this guy, Pietro Figlioli, who is Australian yep. to begin with. So he's, you know, obviously speaks English. Throws the ball very hard. Yeah. Throws the ball, throws the ball very, very hard. Should have been a pitcher. Um, but, um, and so I was fortunate enough to come in a situation where I had some guys that could sort of help me along. Um, you know, it was still difficult. Like, I mean, the, the, just getting there in a language barrier, I'd say was the toughest part. Just, you know, I got a lot better at Italian over as, as the year went on and, you know, the vernacular and pools were repetitive. So you learn that I'd say pretty quickly, but I'd say then socially it was just got much better over time. Um, I was, yeah, I was, I was welcomed, but at the same time, you know, I had never been to Europe and, uh, not many, I don't know if the players ever, you know, had their first professional season, been on a team like Reco. Um, and so there was, I don't know if you asked, you sort of had to earn it, sort of had to show the rest of the team that I, you know, deserve to be here. I deserve to, you know, have around a spot on the roster. And, um, and I would say that was, that was a great thing for me, just having to go there and not having guys is not that they didn't respect me, but you know, you still have to show that, Hey, I can, you know, you can, you can trust me in the game. It's been great speaking to you, Ben. I, w- I could go on forever, and I d- am genuinely appreciative that you spent this t- amount of time. I'm going to bug you for more of your time later, so just get accustomed <laughs> to that idea. This has been really great. Um, that's Ben Halleck. He is an, a two-time Olympian, and uh, it's hard to uh, it's it's all it's probably um, not enough to say a Champions League champion. I mean, that is huge in the sport, and probably doesn't get enough press in the United States. But Ben Halleck, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, James. Pleasure. That's it for today. We'll return soon with more of the Total Water Polo Podcast. But thank you for listening and telling a friend about us. And, of course, subscribe and do all that podcasty stuff on most of the biggest uh, distribution channels. Also, go to TotalWaterPolo.com forward slash give to help us remain advertising free. And while you're there, go check out our collection of Total Water Polo and TX Water Polo goodies by clicking gear at the top of the menu. Until next time, so long from Austin, Texas. This has been a production of TWP Sports LLC.